to the Hogan Lovells Brexit podcast. I'm Susan Bright, the firm's managing partner for the UK and Africa and leader of our Brexit task force. As you can imagine, Brexit has somewhat taken over my work life since the UK voted to leave the EU back in June 2016. Since then, we've been doing a lot of thinking about what Brexit will mean for our clients, for businesses, for the UK, for the EU and for the rest of the world. The podcast you're about to listen to was part of our Navigating the Negotiations webinar series, which we've been running throughout 2017. You can find the slides that accompany the webinar and much, much more about Brexit on our hub at hoganlevels.com forward slash Brexit. We hope you find this podcast useful. Please do rate, review and subscribe. It helps others to find the podcast and make sure that you know when our next episode is released. Welcome everyone to the second of our webinar series, Navigating the Negotiations. Um, the first we held on the 30th of March, the countdown to Brexit begins, which was everything that you needed to know about the exit process and what businesses should be doing. So my name is Susan Bright and I lead the Hogan Lovells Brexit Task Force and today I'm very pleased to be joined by my colleagues, Charles Brasted, who leads our public law and policy practice in London. Peter Watts is our Global Head of Commercial Law, and Lourdes Gatrain, who leads our International Trade Practice in Brussels. So, our plan over the next 45 minutes or so is to provide you with a practical roadmap about how the negotiations could unfold using three potential scenarios. We'll then debate how those possibilities might work both in London and Brussels, look at some practical implications for business, and then consider whether there are particular issues for certain industries. So I'm going to turn first to Charles to set the scene by updating us all on some latest developments. Thank you, Susan. Um, avoiding a history lesson, I'll start on the 29th of March uh, of this year when the UK triggered the Article 50 withdrawal process uh, by giving notice to the European Union of its intention to leave. So we know now that the default long stop date for the UK's exit is March 2019. But I emphasise the word default there, and we'll come back to that later. Since then, the UK has been relatively quiet, in part because that notice put the ball into the EU's court to establish their position and process, and in part, of course, because of the general election that was called shortly afterwards. The European Union, by contrast, has been active since then, one might even say voluble. That is partly because it is required under Article 50 itself to establish the guidelines under which the Article 50 process will run. These and the directives given under them set out the EU's stall, which is therefore political in nature, but they also legally govern how the Commission, as the EU's appointed negotiator, will do its job, the Commission's mandate for negotiations. The danger of those two things, of course, is that the EU's position can become, by default, the definition of the process. So a little bit more about the EU's position. Core to it 
is a focus at the moment on resolving citizens' rights and financial settlement as a prerequisite to moving on to discuss the future relationship. David Davis, the Secretary of State for exiting the EU, has said that this inflexible view of sequencing of the negotiations will be the row of the summer. As we'll discuss, the UK's ambitions to ensure an orderly move to a new relationship puts into sharp focus the question of when and how progress can be made on the shape of that future relationship. The EU's guidelines also provide the key principles according to which the EU says it will negotiate Brexit. And those guidelines, as they currently stand, apply equally to the withdrawal, the framework for a future relationship, and any form of transition arrangements. Those principles, uh, I'd highlight two or three. One is an emphasis on the balance of rights and obligations, and in particular the principle that a non-member without the obligations of membership cannot have the same rights. Uh, secondly, uh, that there should be no sector-by-sector -sector approach and no cherry-picking between the four fundamental freedoms. And finally, and this is really a political negotiating point, that there will be a single negotiation of a single package. In other words, nothing's agreed until everything is. The directives elaborate on those guidelines and the phased approach, confirming that the EU intends to negotiate in phases, first prioritizing uh, those two key matters of the financial settlement and citizens' rights, and then when it decides sufficient progress has been made on those, allowing negotiations to progress to the next phase, and that would be what they describe as preliminary and preparatory discussions about an overall understanding of the framework of the future relationship. I'm not sure how many more tentative words they could get into that description. The substance of the future relationship, therefore, is not dealt with at all in the current directives, which state that a new set of directives will be drawn up in respect of subsequent phases of the negotiations. But I'll draw out two significant points of interpretation from our perspective. The first is that, despite all the words, neither the guidelines nor the directives rule out directly negotiation of the future relationship as part of or alongside the Article 50 negotiations. And secondly, that they do acknowledge that transition arrangements, including what they call bridges to the foreseeable framework for the future, can be adopted under the withdrawal agreement. This points to, I suggest, some room for manoeuvre in due course, but also to hard issues to resolve, such as the interplay between continuity and the structural aspects of membership that the UK is seeking to escape, such as the CJEU. Briefly on the UK's position, the general election campaign has, as I said, meant that UK government policy has not developed much since the most recent white paper on the Great Repeal Bill, published on the 30th of March, the date of our last webinar. The Conservative Manifesto emphasises that no deal is better than a bad deal, uh, and that we will not be members of the single market or customs union. The Labour Party has made clear that if they win the election, they will not be following those principles. As regards the Court of Justice of the European Union, the White Paper made clear that, that it should have no role in interpreting the transposed EU law acquis, as it's called, um, and the domestic court should not be required to take account of post-Brexit EU judgments. But it was careful not to exclude any role 
for the European Court. In terms of what comes next, um, we know that the Queen's speech, um, the announcement of legislation forthcoming session, will take place on the 18th of June. If the Conservatives are still in government then, they've stated they intend to include the Great Repeal Bill in that speech and to introduce it into Parliament thereafter. If so, a draft of the bill is expected on or about the date of the Queen's speech, i.e. the 18th of June. And the very next day, on the 19th of June, we see the first round of formal negotiations with the EU opening. So what we now embark on is twin tracks of domestic implementation in the UK seeking to provide continuity and negotiations with the EU seeking access but on a changed basis. Sequencing and timing of both of those will be a crucial factor to success, as crucial perhaps as the substance of the deal. Uh, thank you, Charles, for setting the scene. Um, now, Peter, if we could turn to you, could you use your crystal ball and take us through how the Brexit process may unfold? Yes, so uh, Charles has outlined some of the political dynamics, and what I want to touch on now are some of the practical issues for business. Uh, one of the most important questions that we hear from clients when we talk to them is, what should I be doing now, and to what extent should I treat Brexit and the Brexit process as wait and see? And as Charles mentioned, a key part of this is that Brexit is as much about process for business as it is about substance. It's not just a question of what laws will change or how will the regulatory environment be different after Brexit. As important for business is when will I know what the changes are, how much warning will I have to adjust my business model to it. And that's important. It's important in that context to think about that, not just in the context of how it plays into the process in, in Brussels, in London and between the two, but also how it plays into your business planning. So to help with that, what I want to do now is to outline three fairly basic models uh, within which one can think about that process and within which we will then try to explore a little more some of the issues that might emerge in the discussions politically. And those three models are on the slide now. What I'll talk about is both the characteristics of those models and some of the implications for business, and then we'll talk about the implications that might be drawn from the way the process unfolds, and finally a little about how that should play into your planning. The first of those models is what we've termed the glide path. In this model, the UK and the EU reach relatively quickly, reach an agreement under which they uh, decide to try to maintain as much continuity as is conceivably possible for business for an extended period and then work through the changes in detail on an individual case-by-case -case basis. Charles has mentioned the Great Repeal Bill, and if we think about the UK government's approach in outlining the Great Repeal Bill, that is essentially to keep everything the same and then make changes on a case-by-case -case basis. So the glide path model envisages the UK and the EU agreeing to apply the same principle 
as the Great Repeal Bill to their relationship. Almost inevitably, it seems, that an extended glide path period would see some changes, no doubt some form of uh, changes to the rules on immigration, perhaps equivalent to the emergency break that David Cameron negotiated in his discussions with the EU, and some changes to the role of European law within the UK, as those are the two key priorities that the UK government has outlined. But nonetheless, it is certainly possible to conceive of an arrangement, whether involving continued membership of the EU or a new relationship which has many of the same practical implications for business, which provides a glide path. The second model is what we've described as the cliffhanger. This is one that's been talked about quite a lot and perhaps is uh, the most characteristic of political negotiations. In this model, the UK and the EU would undertake enthusiastic negotiation over a long-term relationship, but broadly speaking, towards the uh, soft Brexit end of the spectrum, providing in the longer term a degree of continuity, but wouldn't reach that agreement until the 11th hour, uh, probably just before the UK's withdrawal is due to take effect. So the substance, the important difference here is about process, because the substance continuity is largely the same. But the level of confidence that we can draw that continuity is going to be there is very different. We won't know that until the very last minute. And that takes us to the third possible model, which we've described as the cliff edge. In this world, the UK and the EU fail to reach an agreement, and the UK leaves without any ongoing relationship with the EU other than under general international rules. This clearly provides a significant degree of change. We move on to the next slide. This outlines what that means for business in two important terms. One is around the degree of certainty and confidence that business can draw as to the relationship between the UK and the EU going forward and the extent to which change will take place, and therefore the degree of confidence with which business can plan for the future, that we've described as certainty. And the second is the degree of continued alignment between the UK and the EU. In other words, an indicator of the extent to which there will be substantive change or little change at all. In the glide path model, Certainty increases relatively rapidly because we envisage an agreement to provide a longer degree of transition and continuity. And alignment reduces slowly over time with a degree of predictability. In the cliffhanger model, we would see very low degrees of uncertainty extended right through the March 2019, the current scheduled exit date, but a, a relatively low degree of uh, reduction in the alignment between the EU and the UK at that point. In the cliff edge, we see little certainty going down to virtually none at the point of exit, when no doubt no agreement would be in place, but continued discussions would be underway 
and perhaps at some point later on, a new agreement being reached. And you can see that this has an impact on business priorities. For any period during which there is a high degree of uncertainty, there will be a premium for those who can do so, those providing services to other businesses, who can provide services in a way that provides solutions, flexibility in the face of that uncertainty. Contracts or relationships that are able to flex, depending on the outcome of the negotiations, will be much more valuable when uncertainty is high. You can also see that there is a degree to which, whilst there is a degree of uncertainty, the priority is first on analysing and thinking about how you can build flexibility within your own business. As time progresses towards the March 2019 date, we will in any world be important for business to start internal preparation. But in the glide path model, internal preparation can start earlier because we'll have more certainty earlier. The final step in, in acting practically on Brexit will be the implementation externally, changing what you do with your business partners, what you say to your customers. And again, in the glide path model, if we reach a higher degree of certainty relatively early, you'll be able to start doing that and close out the issues earlier. The cliffhanger model and the cliff edge probably involve having to start real, practical, hard-edged change in the business sometime in the middle of 2018, even though there is no certainty as to how things will turn out. Now to move on to how that starts to interact with the process between the UK and Brussels. Susan will explore uh, with Charles and Lourdes in a moment what that will look like politically, so I'm going to look at it again from some of the practical questions that business is likely to be interested in, and how that relates to those three models, the cliff edge, the cliffhanger and the glide path that I've outlined. Inevitably, if no withdrawal agreement can be reached, or if it proves impossible to reach an agreement, whether within a withdrawal agreement or some other form of long-term agreement, whatever legal construct is used for that, that can provide uh, a period of transition, if neither of those things can be achieved, we will inevitably head towards the cliff edge. If, on the other hand, it is possible to reach a withdrawal agreement and it proves both legally and practically, and those two things are likely to be very different, possible to agree, uh, to agree a transition, we can head towards the glide path. But in a world where it proves legally possible to uh, achieve a long-term relationship, uh, but that cannot be done within a relatively short period of time because either we cannot reach that long-term relationship quickly or because no long-term no, no long transition relationship can be achieved within the withdrawal context, we will find ourselves in a position where we are waiting until 
the 11th hour. Hence the importance of understanding whether within both the legal and the political dynamic uh, between the UK and the EU, it is going to prove possible to reach a transitional arrangement, whatever form that might take, relatively quickly to provide certainty for business, or whether that will turn out to be something which cannot be done, in which case business will find place an extended period of uncertainty. Thank you, Peter. Um, I think that demonstrates some of the um, complexities, not only of substance, but process and timing that um, we all in business face. I mean, for, for me, there are, you know, sort of two real burning questions. On what terms um, will the UK withdraw from EU membership? Really keen to know what that is and soon. And secondly, what does the future look like, the end state relationship between the UK and the EU? I mean, those are the, those are the key big questions. In terms of negotiating each of these, I think that both sides recognise the importance both of the nature of the future relationship and of a smooth transition from where we are today to whatever that may be. The UK obviously is keen to settle that future relationship during the Article 50 negotiation window. Um, but what I'd like to explore is, is that possible? And if not, then what would govern the UK-EU relationship between the end of the Article 50 process and reaching an agreement on that future relationship? So, Charles, I wondered if I could turn first to you and ask, is it possible for an end state relationship to be negotiated and finalised during the course of the Article 50 negotiation process? I think there are, there are three aspects to a complete answer to that question. One is what's lawful. Uh, the second is what's practical, as Peter already said. And the third is where is the political will? Um, I think I have, if I've learned anything in the last year, it's not to make political predictions. Um, so on that third question, uh, for present purposes, I'm going to assume that ultimately, if not immediately, there will be the political will on both sides to ensure a smooth transition to that effective future relationship, whatever it might be. Practicality, the second question, is of course partly dependent on the legal limits of what could be done lawfully. So I'd like to start there. Um, if uh, politics is, is the art of the possible, I hope that in this context, law is the science of the possible. Uh, and what we want to do is bring a little scientific rigor uh, to the framework within which politics is going to have to operate. So the legal framework that we're now in comes in three parts. You've got the EU treaties. They are the general EU law that will govern all of this because we remain part of the EU and this is an EU law-led process. Secondly, you've got Article 50 of the treaty, uh, which is the specific provision governing withdrawal. And then thirdly, under that, you've got, as we've already mentioned, the guidelines and the directives that set out uh, in legally binding terms, uh, the mandate of the Commission as the EU's negotiating actor. So that last is both political 
and capable of being changed during the course of negotiations, but for the time being, also legally binding. So Article 50 first. Two things we can say without fear of contradiction are that it's ambiguous and it's entirely untested. What I would point to is that it talks about um, it's the process being to negotiate and agree the arrangements for withdrawal of a withdrawing member state. That could be interpreted widely or narrowly. Similarly, take the, the, it also requires that those negotiations take account of, and this is to quote, take account of the framework for the future relationship. Again, that can be interpreted narrowly or broadly. Or to put it another way, do those words set a limit on the scope of what can be done in an Article 50 agreement? Or do they impose a minimum requirement of what the parties must do? I suggest that the mischief at which those words are directed is the risk that there is insufficient alignment between the withdrawal terms and the reality of the future. And it is seeking to address that, not to hold back progress on that very future relationship that it's supposed to take into account. That said, the current guidelines and directives binding the Commission are relatively narrow in their interpretation and their instructions to the Commission. That is not ultimately legally conclusive. And I would also say there is scope for manoeuvre within the language of the guidelines on the extent to which the EU can negotiate pre-withdrawal. There is clearly a grey area between the framework for a future relationship and doing a complete deal. Again, are those guidelines intending to set limits on what could be achieved or merely indicating what the minimum task ahead is? I suggest the latter. Article 50, of course, is part of the treaty framework and it needs to be seen in the context of the treaties as a whole. Does it provide a freestanding legal basis for agreement? Um, the EU has said, and this must be right, that it is a special one-off power. But it is very unlikely, in my view, to be a basis for a full-scale international agreement negotiated and concluded in a vacuum from the rest of the treaties. So you have to ask, what's the effect of other treaty provisions on the scope of Article 50 and what could be done around it? And in particular, what's the effect of those treaty provisions that govern how the EU enters into international agreements, principally free trade agreements? What those provisions do is provide both the power to enter into international agreements and the procedure for doing so. It's clear in my view that those provisions preclude concluding an international agreement with the UK before the UK becomes a third country. But do they preclude getting to the point of being ready to do that deal? Do they stop the Commission being given a mandate to start those negotiations, whether formally or substantively? I believe they don't. But either way, there is a practical question of how far discussions on the future relationship could go, whether as part of discussing the future framework under Article 50 or pursuing an international agreement, 
in the context of the ongoing Article 50 negotiations. So in terms of that practical question, um, I'm really keen on a, a Brussels view. So Lourdes, um, how far do you think that the EU and the UK could go towards um, working out the terms of a future relationship during the Article 50 process? Thank you, Susan. According to Article 50, Paragraph 2, the agreement setting out the arrangements of the UK's withdrawal shall be negotiated and concluded, concluded taking account of the framework for the UK's future relationship with the Union. So a literal interpretation of this provision requires that the withdrawal agreement covers the areas relating to the withdrawal of the UK from the EU only and this is very important, the only taking into account the future relationship. It is also important to consider other provisions of the EU treaties. The future agreement between the EU and the UK will be concluded following the procedure set out in Article 218, which sets out the procedure for the conclusion of international agreements between the EU and third countries. But it can be argued that the framework for its future relationship with the Union can cover preliminary and preparatory discussions. So if we interpret this provision broadly, and given the interplay between the withdrawal of the UK and its future relationship with the EU, as well as the practical consequences of an abrupt divorce, the framework of the future relationship should be clearly defined. There is a thin line between the two especially if one considers the process of both negotiations. Article 218 and the long-standing EU practice on trade negotiations sets a straightforward roadmap for negotiating and concluding international agreements. The language of the treaties entails that the UK must be a third country before an international agreement can be concluded with the EU. Therefore, as Charles just said, this can only happen only after the UK withdraws from the EU. Doing otherwise will defeat the purpose of the EU treaties, and it could contravene, in my view, Article 31 of the Vienna Convention of the Law of the Treaties, which provides for the general rules of interpretation of international treaties, which in simple terms requires that the interpretation of the treaties needs to respect the language, the context, and the purpose of the treaty. So, Lord, as a matter of law, um, it might be possible for the terms to be developed in advance of the withdrawal and then concluded immediately after? Well, you know, as a matter of law, it may be. But the process of negotiating, finalising and concluding an agreement is not insignificant, as set out in Article 218. In any event, in practice, it is, it is difficult to imagine the terms being agreed within two years while parties are also negotiating the withdrawal arrangements. The negotiation and conclusion of the... Lourdes, thank you. I, I was just going to ask Peter, do you think the UK sees it that way? So I, I think the UK look at it through the other end of the telescope. Uh, the UK's view is that unlike any other trade agreement that has ever been struck, uh, the starting point of the parties here is that they, ha they are fully aligned and therefore the process of negotiation is to decide where and to what extent they move apart. That would be quite different from 
the perspective of a traditional trade negotiation where the parties start in different places and have to agree how and where to move together. I can see that. I, I guess that really turns on to, moves us on to the question of timing. So I think it's fair to say that on any view, the timing and the politics mean that it's pretty challenging, probably unlikely, to have full details of the future relationship agreed uh, before the end of March 2019. So, Lourdes, could I ask you, um, does it have to be done within that timescale in order to avoid a gap? Well, Article 50, Paragraph 3, explicitly states that the EU treaties will cease to apply to the UK from the date of the entry into force of the withdrawal agreement, or failing that, two years after the notification of the withdrawing member to the European Council, unless the latter and the UK agree to extend that period. So, it seems that the treaty provides for possible options. The EU treaties will cease to apply two years after the withdrawal notification, that is 30th of March 2019, unless the entry to force of the withdrawal agreement is deferred or there is an unanimous decision of the EU27 and the UK to extend the two-year time limit. As a matter of international law, entry to force of an international agreement does not necessarily coincide with its conclusion. The entry to force of the agreement is a matter that is provided for by the agreement itself, or in case such provision is not included therein, as soon as the consent of all negotiating parties has been established. Nothing in the language of Article 50 prohibits the parties from setting a withdrawal date either before or after the two-year default time limit. Thus, the EU treaties could continue to apply to the UK even after the conclusion of the withdrawal agreement and pending its entry into force. Alternatively, the UK and the EU, with an unanimous voting in the Council, could agree to extend the two-year time limit, which would entail continuation of the application of EU treaties to the UK. However, this could not lead to an indefinite extension of the UK's membership, as the purpose of Article 50 is to provide for temporary arrangements until the withdrawal is completed. Yeah, that makes sense. So an extension of time is legally achievable if the political will exists. But I guess, would it provide the space and the time needed to agree and move in an orderly fashion to the new future relationship, i.e. to avoid a cliff edge? I think, Charles, can I bring you in here? Do you think an extension of time is enough to avoid that cliff edge scenario? Yeah, I think it, I think it depends how we buy time. Um, it seems to me that there are essentially two ways that we buy time. One is by continuing the status quo, i.e. the UK's membership of the EU, and the other is by creating something different that is in truth, although it would never be called this publicly, a stopgap solution. Which of those to pursue will depend on two key things. First, legal. How far can we go in negotiating the new relationship without becoming a third country? That's the question we've already um, gone through to some extent. And secondly, a political question, how strong is the political imperative to demonstrate that the UK has left the EU or that things have changed materially? 
So as Lourdes has already said, it's clear that the date of withdrawal can be extended under Article 50. And if remaining a member of the EU is politically deliverable, both for the UK and the EU, and that does not stop progress towards a future relationship, then this is clearly the simplest option from a legal perspective. Regarding political deliverability of that, one key question is going to be what, if any, room there is to provide accommodations to recognise the fact that the UK is withdrawing and to recognise the political motivation behind that. So really coming back to, as Peter was saying, things like immigration and the role of the CGE. What room is there to agree accommodations on those? David Cameron's deal, as it was, shows that there was at that time, while remaining a member, some room for manoeuvre on immigration through an emergency break. But putting limits on the CJEU is extremely difficult because all of this would have to work within the treaties. Second question about political deliverability is how could it be delivered? How could those accommodations be put in place? Could it be done using EU law instruments? Could it be done using the terms of the withdrawal agreement itself? The latter uh, may work if the withdrawal agreement can be brought into effect in phases as a contract or a piece of legislation maybe, such that the withdrawal is not triggered, but other provisions of that withdrawal agreement come into force earlier and govern this modified form of continuity. The alternative to that continuity within the EU structure is a bespoke legal arrangement where the UK leaves, withdraws, but readopts the EU acquis uh, for a period under an international agreement. That's really to make international the approach of the Great Repeal Bill that Peter was mentioning. And this could be politically very attractive for the UK government and may facilitate modifications in that interim period to the relationship. But is it practically or politically achievable from an EU perspective? An alternative which closely follows the Great Repeal Bill approach is creating an autonomous body of law operating on the international plane that replicates the EU agreement but with those modifications. Whether this could be done legally under the withdrawal agreement or otherwise goes back to the questions we've already talked about, about the scope of those legal provisions. It's an attractive argument that an interim application of the EU law substance, but not within the EU, is part of a withdrawal arrangement that, to use the words of Article 50, takes account of the framework for the future relationship, because it would be directly facilitating a move to that future relationship over time. It would likely appeal to the UK, but I think it's fair to say the EU is not currently showing any signs of this sort of deal being on their agenda. As ever, the political position of the EU on the indivisibility of the single market aspects, uh, the fundamental freedoms will be key. And there would undoubtedly be difficult questions about the role of the CJEU. The UK would be arguing that this interim relationship is autonomous and outside the EU framework and therefore not within the CJEU's jurisdiction, but would probably accept that questions of EU law that arise would have to go to the CJEU, 
Whether that is a compromise that the EU can live with remains to be seen. The more, in summary, the more that we are looking at something different from continued membership in an interim period, the more it becomes almost as difficult to negotiate as negotiating the future relationship itself. So on both sides, the parties, if the political will exists, will need to trim their cloth uh, to suit the objective of an orderly transition within those legal and political constraints. Thank you, Charles. I think that um, reveals the uh, complexity of what lies before us. Um, and it really moves me on to ask Peter, what should businesses be doing right now, um, going back to the context of the three scenarios that you identified earlier? So I think the, the most important thing we take from all of that complexity is that, um, by definition, unless within nine to 12 months we have confidence that we're on a glide path, that some uh, extended interim solution has been developed, we will inevitably be living in a world where we have a high degree of uncertainty as to whether we're heading over the cliff edge or having a happy ending to a cliffhanger until late in the day. Right now then, I think business priority needs to be to model and plan against each of the issues that business potentially faces coming out of Brexit against those three scenarios. Uh, what we've illustrated here is a way of looking at that. This just takes a small sample of the sorts of issues that most businesses will face. There are many others. And in each case, one can look at both whether or not each of those three scenarios would create risk or downside for the business, uh, and whether it, it provides potential opportunities. And on the next slide, we'll see that the uh, next step is to, is to think through in the context of, for your business, uh, the individual context, whether it's, whether it's particular regulation, regulatory issues or it's the length of your contracts or the, or the arrangements that you have with employees, what to do, when to do it, and who to do it, in terms of each step identifying what those issues are, looking at how to build that internal flexibility that enables you to respond, whether or not there are messages out there in the market, at what point to move into the next stage of detailed analysis, uh, at what stage to actually start making changes to your business, and finally, at what stage to start engaging with the outside world. Thank you, Peter. So that's a useful framework, um, thinking about businesses in general. But just to finish, I was going to turn to Charles and ask Charles, um, what do you, is there anything special about particular industry sectors that's worth drawing out? Yeah, I, I mean, there are clearly headline issues that cut across, so things like talent or immigration, depending on which side of that debate you're on, and macroeconomic issues, and all of the analysis that Peter has been talking about. Um, I think what's clear from, from where we sit, looking across sectors, which is a great advantage of the job we do, um, one sees that the analysis and the engagement so far is largely sectoral. Uh, but there are, if you look across, some common themes, distinctions, and lessons to learn. Um, and I think that if you start from the two prongs of the Brexit process that we've discussed, the Great Repeal Bill and the negotiations, what they tell you is broadly that the UK is going to be seeking to achieve continuity of rules, uh, and that drives business to focus on the second question, um, which is the thing that needs to be negotiated, 
access. And they also tell us that uh, sequencing and timing is going to be crucial, and therefore businesses focus on the cliff edge scenario that Peter highlighted. Because of uh, WTO rules and the EU's approach, uh, uh, one thing that you see uh, very clearly is that wholly different approaches to each sector in the negotiations are unlikely to be realistic. So finding common mechanisms across sectors is important for businesses when it comes to things like the bases for access, how to monitor those, and dispute resolution mechanisms. The key question overall is how do you take advantage of the shared regulatory starting point that the UK and EU has while seeking to accommodate within the deal future changes uh, without making the whole system too brittle that it falls over when politics detect changes needed. Uh, businesses need to look at what they can do there across sectors, um, as well as looking at the specifics of their own sectors, whether it's the effect of regulatory capital requirements in financial services or the ownership rules for aviation uh, that make things particularly difficult for some of those sectors. So with, with government increasingly wanting business to help them craft a comprehensive agreement, and we certainly see that through the work we're doing on financial services, for example, drawing the links between the sectors becomes more necessary uh, and more compelling. Thank you very much, Charles. So just to finish, how, how can Hogan Levels help? Um, well, just turning to our Brexit resources for further help and guidance, um, please, everybody, feel free to visit our dedicated Brexit hub at hoganlevels.com backslash Brexit. It contains all our latest thinking on the legal issues about Brexit, including the issues we've talked about today. You can also sign up for our regular Brexit bulletin email using the button at the top of the page. We'll be holding further webinars in this series, Navigating the Negotiations. The next one's going to be on the 22nd of June, when we'll be talking about the UK domestic legislative task ahead to implement Brexit, including the widely anticipated Great Repeal Bill. And following this, we will host a trade-focused webinar on the 10th of July to demystify the jargon around um, trade and the negotiations and consider what post-Brexit trade policy might look like. If you haven't signed up for these webinars already, you can do so using the links that we'll send around um, by email following up on this webinar. Finally, as always, if you want to talk to any of us about how Brexit might impact on your own business, how you can best prepare, please get in touch with us by contacting a member of our Brexit task force or by emailing the general email brexit at hoganlovels.com. So I'd just like to finish by thanking all of you for listening um, and thanking uh, our speakers today for, for joining me. And I do hope very much that you will all join us again on the 22nd of June. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>